Our passage this morning is a, contains a lot of perplexing things. Did you notice that at the end of the reading Jeremiah just did for us? Galatians chapter 4, verse 20. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. I'm perplexed about you. Your situation is perplexing to me, Paul says. It's like the story, like the situation of a fellow named William Tavularius. William Tavularius. He's been living in his 20-year-old car. He's been getting increasingly in trouble for petty crime. His friends and loved ones are disturbed by his increasingly irrational behavior. He's homeless. He's getting in trouble. People are worried about him. But what's perplexing about that story, because that kind of story happens all the time, right? What's perplexing about William's story is that his father was the president of Mobile Oil who took them from $7 billion in revenue to $70 billion in revenue over the course of 15 years as president. And William is one of two heirs of everything. So here he is, homeless. Here he is getting in silly trouble, stealing silly stuff. And his brother says, I don't know what's going on. He's got millions in a trust fund. If you can imagine the kind of parachute that a guy who takes a company from 7 to $70 billion gets... William's doing all right on paper. It's a perplexing situation, isn't it? What's, what's wrong with him, right? There's something he doesn't get. There's some, some kind of mental illness, maybe an addiction, an enslavement to something. This is the perplexing situation that, that Paul is saying that the Galatians are in. This story might be your story too. That's a little clickbait. You click on that. This story could be your story. It's strange when a person has everything, but then they live like they need everything. Right? This guy is, there's a, there's a lot of stories like this. People who've got millions in the bank, you know, millions in cash rolled up in their mattress, but they live like they're homeless. They look, live like they need everything when really we look at them and say they have everything. And this is the story of the Galatians. Now let's pick up here in chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. Let's read this together. Galatians 4, 1 to 7. So this is going to sound a little bit like, for those of you who've been with us through our whole study, this is going to sound a little bit like a review, maybe a summary and a review. But this is all a setup for really what, what is perplexing Paul and what is going to be confronting us in a moment. So in Galatians 4 and 1, let's pick up reading there. Uh, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's owner of everything. But he's under the guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also we, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So this is this, this review of the beautiful truths that Paul's been teaching since chapter 1. That we were slaves, but God sent Jesus Christ to set us free. Now, we're not going to talk about freedom a lot today because this is something Paul spends a lot more time on in chapter 4 and 5. So we'll, we'll spend some time thinking about being free in Christ. But, but here... We were slaves and now we're set free. And what's more, he says, and this is really the important point of this section, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
we were adopted. Now, the phrase as sons doesn't just mean like uh, as males, but this was actually a legal action that, that uh, citizens uh, who owned a bunch of stuff, right, they could take legal action to create a legal position. In the Greco-Roman Empire, if, if uh, a citizen was going to die childless and they didn't have an heir, they could take a favored slave... So here's where this connection is. Set free, set them free and raise them, elevate them to be their sole heir legally. So that they went from being a slave to now owner of everything. And this, Paul says, is what Jesus Christ did for us. We become owners of everything. So, so Paul reviews this, that God sent Jesus to to bring us into this kind of relationship, God sent the Spirit to make that relationship and that truth real for us. But then, like I said already, this is really just a setup for the problem. This is like when your mom says to you, yeah, you know how I like gave birth to you and like you owe me your whole life? You know that? Remember that? You know? And then they're like, what's going to happen next here, right? So look with me in verses 9 to 11. Let's start in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain." So here's the big question, the, the thing that's perplexing Paul. How can you turn back? How can you want to be slaves again? Nobody wants to be slaves again. Right? So, you know, they, they, would, they would hear this and be like, what? Who wants to be slaves? There's this, there's this great scene in uh, Jesus' ministry where he's conversing with the Pharisees, and he says, uh, you know, I have come that you may uh, be set free, right? That if the Son comes and sets you free, you're free indeed. And the Pharisees say, they don't say, wow, that sounds cool. They say, we've never been anybody's slaves. We're children of Abraham. We've never been slaves to anyone. So people get a little chippy about this, right? But, the, but one of the great sorrows of our lives, which all of us can identify with, is that we don't see our idols. We don't see our enchantment and our enslavement to those idols. We don't see those things for ourselves. And Paul's raising to the attention of the Galatians and to us that the whole world is tilted in the direction of idolatry and slavery. And we just tend to roll that way. And this is what is the problem at Galatia. So they're, they're going back to being slaves to what? Did you notice this really interesting expression here? Verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. That's blue with an underline on it, right? So we're going to click on that in a second. But look, he brings it up again. Uh, verse 8, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? They're going to be slaves to the elementary principles. This is such an interesting concept and one that I want to convey to you so that you have it as a category for thinking about yourself and about the world and about, about what's going on in other people's lives as well. So 
the, the elementary principles of the world, this is, this is basic paganism. This is the structure of all paganism. Whatever you go to a jungle island out in the Pacific or, or, or the, the, the frosty reaches of, of the northern Europe, wherever you go, basic paganism follows this general structure. And this is kind of like the, uh, the, the preloaded OS for all fallen human beings. It's just how we think. We think, I want a good life. Good, good. You want a good life? That's a good thing to want. All right, so I'm going to follow the rules. What are the rules I need to follow to have a good life? The, you know, the, the seven habits of highly effective people, or the 48 laws of power, or the 12 rules to live by. Like, whatever those things are, I need to follow those rules. Now, which rules are we going to follow? The rules that align with the elementary principles. The rules that align with the elementary principles. So, yeah, this is what philosophers would call, you want to find out the first principles of things, and then you want to build your life upon those things. So different cultures and different places and different times have, have looked to, literally, right, the stars. They look at the stars and they say, oh, today is an auspicious day. Here's the elementary principles. Now here's the rules that you should follow to get into the good life based on, right, that these elementary principles can guardian you and manage you through their rules, their laws, to get you to the good life. Stars, the, uh, the literal physical elements, right? You know, the, the earth, wind, fire, water kind of stuff. At different times and different places, they say, well, these are, the, these are the elementary principles, and they must therefore have gods behind them that we need to live in alignment with, follow their rules, get to the good life. In our own world, maybe it's money, it's power, it's technology, it's, uh, it's thoughts, you know? You just need to, you just need to speak the, the reality that you want to get into. The world is made by words and you just want to align yourself with this fundamental principle so that, and follow these rules so that you can get to the good life. So this is this do better, try harder, here's how impulse. Which, it looks so good. I mean, it looks like it's the only thing. Right? I want to live a good life. How do I do it? I want to get the good. Well, right, we have to make decisions based on this. We have to decide where is the power to get that? Where is the good that I want? And then what are the rules? What's the way to get that thing? And the elementary principles define that. But Paul says that these are weak and worthless. Weak and worthless. Imagine the hubris of somebody saying the entire way that the Jewish people are using the Old Testament law is weak and worthless. It's not going to get them anything. They're using the rules and the laws based on their idea of the Old Testament and this will get them the promises, the blessings, the good things. It's weak and worthless. He's looking at the entire Roman Empire. right? People still travel... 2,000 years later, to Rome, to look at the glory of Rome. And he's living in the middle of it, and he's saying, you see all of this glory, all of the rules that, that Rome followed to get there? He says, it's weak and worthless. It's not going to take anybody where they truly want to go. It's weak and worthless. Can I tell you a little sad story? So, a couple weeks ago, a month ago maybe, some turtle doves came and nested on our front porch. And they laid a couple beautiful little blue eggs. And then it got really cold. 
right? And so they deserted the nest and they're gone. And so those eggs are still kind of just chilling out there. And then another dove has come and sat on them. And she seems committed to these eggs that we know they're not going to hatch. This is the way of the world. The world hands us these eggs. The world says, these are the things that are going to fulfill you. These are the things that you need. Just, just do this and you will get the life that you want. And so people sit there. They sit there the whole life long. We go out on the porch and we can't startle this thing. It's committed to raising these eggs in what is not even a nest anymore. They're gone. It's never going to hatch. The elementary principles of the world, the rules, the laws, all the different books on these things is not going to deliver what we actually, actually want. So why do we do this? Why would we, why would we do this? This is what Paul says here. Look at me again in verse 9. Why are we doing this? I'm sorry, I skipped something. I want to, I want to point out... Uh, when Paul's talking about enslavement here, he's not talking about enslavement like we tend to think to sinful addictions. He's actually talking about being slaves to being good people. You see that? Like the Galatians' problem is not their substance abuse. It's not their like uh, just pathological need to steal and, and harm. And they're, they're being re-enslaved to being good. And this is why he's so worried because the better your idols, the worse your enslavement's going to be. Think about that for a second. The better your idols, the worse your enslavement is going to be. Because instead of feeling dirty, you're going to feel superior. You know, there's some addictions, there's some enslavements where you feel like you're an outsider. You feel like you're ostracized. You feel dirty. But when you commit to to improving your life by working harder, trying better, following the rules, you're going to feel better about yourself. You're going to feel celebrated by the culture and by communities rather than ostracized. But Paul says in chapter 5, verse 4, he says, you are, Galatians, falling away from grace. Listen to this. You're falling away from grace because you're just trying to be good. You're falling away from grace because you're trying to be good. Your love... For the Old Testament law of all things, which is a great thing. But your love for the Old Testament law has made you slaves to just a different version of the same non-gods that Jesus saved you from in the first place. It's the same thing, the elementary principles of the world. Why do they want to do this? Why do they want to be slaves once more? I mean, that's the answer right there. Chapter 4, verse 9. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You want to be slaves again? You want to be slaves again? You remember that story when the people of Israel are coming out of Egypt and, and right, they, they, they were the subject of a genocidal pogrom. Right? They've been enslaved for generations. And God, who smokes the Egyptians, right, and is going to take them into the land flowing with milk and honey, how many times the children of Israel are like, let's go back. Let's go back to enslavement. And do you remember why? They, they would say, remember the leeks and the garlic? 
and the onions, right? Those are weeds. Those were weeds. They were saying, God who just did all this is going to take us to the land flowing with milk and honey. You've had milk and honey, right? You've had leeks. I mean, they're, they're fine, right? But once you've had milk and honey, you would like to have that every meal, every day. But they can't imagine that. They'd rather go back and have breakfast with weeds in slavery. Right? The gospel is amazing and we sing about it, but all of us can identify with this impulse in us to be more comfortable with, with working hard and trying our best. And following the, the rules. We're just more comfortable with that. That just makes more, we have more experience with that. That's validated and celebrated by the culture around us. We are more comfortable with the grind than grace. You know people, I know people who have walked with the Lord and they've just said at the end of the day, I just can't buy it. I can't buy grace. There's got to be more that we do. There's got to be stuff that we do to get the good life. I just don't believe this God, this Christ, this gospel, this word. I don't buy it. And so we get turned from sonship to slavery by what seem like good impulses. This is an ancient problem. Here's Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, Isaiah writes, Come to come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, you who have no money. Come buy and eat, buy wine, buy milk, without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread? Why do you spend your labor on what is not going to satisfy you? And God says, listen to me. Eat what is good. Be delighted. Why do we spend our lives for what is not going to satisfy? Why? Paul's saying because you don't see where you are. You don't see who you are. You don't see what you have. You are in the house of God, the heir and owner of everything. You don't see what you have. You know, we have, we're like William Tavarius. We have millions in the trust fund, and yet we walk the streets all day long looking for loose change. We have every spiritual blessing that exists given to us in Christ. And we walk around feeling like, if I could just do this, maybe I'd get a f- some favor from God. Some, I'd get this blessing. Maybe God would be nice to me in this way. If I, would just, I just need to do this. I just need to do that. When we have it all in Jesus Christ. So Paul gives us something. He gives them something to keep them from sliding back, from keep, to keep them from going back to slavery. And it's, it's this we see in verse 9 again. But now that you have, so notice there, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back? That's the truth that in Paul's mind would secure them to the gospel. If you would understand that you have become known by God. So we're going to think together for a moment this morning about what it means to be known by God, to know our knownness. It begins in verse 4 
We'll just start, we'll just start here, start with this. Now, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So, the first part of knowing our knownness and being steadied against the appeal of the elementary principles is to remember that God sent Christ to redeem us. Now, the picture here in that word redemption is the picture of a slave market. Right? We are being sold the element, to the elementary principles of this world, to the powers that be, to anybody with money and resources. We're just a thing that they can use or not use in order to get the good life for themselves. Right? We're, we're pawns. Right? If, if you're not purchasing the product, then you're the product being sold. We've heard this. But there we are, and God sees us. He sees where we are there on the sales block. And he sends Jesus Christ. He sends Jesus Christ to do all that Jesus did to purchase us back so that we can be his. Right? God knows the whole me. He knows the whole story. He knows the whole you. This is a fact, a premise of the gospel. But as wonderful as that is, it's actually not the point of what Paul's saying. Because let's keep reading there. He says, Jesus came to redeem those who were under the law so that, here's the point, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. I kind of described what this means earlier, but I want you to understand this adoption as sons, this being the, the heir and owner of everything, is a singular relationship. Only one gets it. Only one in the household, in the family, is the heir. Now, God, because he's God, can have that relationship with all of us, but I want you to think that it's that relationship. You are that favored slave raised up to be owner of everything in this household. You are that person. God knows us. He knows all about us. But the point of what Paul's saying is that we're the person for God. When he says to be known by God, we're the person for God whom God immediately and joyfully hears, recognizes, and receives. Like you have friends, you have people in your life where when you see them, whether planned or unplanned, how do you receive them, right? When you, when you see them, you go, hey! Right, the second you lay eyes on them, you just, hey! Because you immediately, joyfully recognize them and want to bring them in, right? You go into places, you hear them, I know that voice. You know, like you hear them and you think, I, I love them. I'm drawn. That's you for him. He hears your voice. He says, hey, I know that voice. You say, hey, God, it, I, I see you. That's who you are for him. That's what it means to be known by him. And so God sends the Holy Spirit because you are sons, right? so that we receive adoption. And now verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, Crying, Abba, Father. So Abba is an Aramaic word. Paul does not translate it. He just transliterates it. It's a very unique, uh, it's a very unique expression. Paul mentions it twice, and it only occurs in one other place outside of Paul's writing. Do you remember where that is in the Bible? 
when Jesus himself says, Abba, Father. In his moment of deepest distress, in his moment of deepest intimacy, we overhear Jesus saying to the Father, Abba. And Paul's saying, that's the relationship that you have with God. It's, it's childlike, it's Christ-like, it's, it's intimate, it's, it, it describes this immediate presence, right? Like you're right there, Daddy. You're right there. It, and it's, it's intense, right? It's an intense intimacy depicted in this, this word. And this is what this, the Spirit is trying to help us understand what it means like to be so known by God. And that, here's, here's maybe the biggest thing this morning, right? That Abba relationship is what it means to be owner of everything. That relationship is what it means to be owner of everything. We are, we are the owner of everything because we're known that way by God. Let me, let me try to explain this. I've been reading books about uh, the White House and presidents and stuff, and one of the interesting things is like the, pre- the secretaries in the White House will keep track of how much time every person has with the president. So you can, you can sort of measure your power ranking by like minutes, hours, uh, just right, too much to count. You know, when, when uh, John F. Kennedy was in the White House, right? Uh, Bobby was in there all the time. He had all, you know, they didn't really keep track of that. Lyndon Johnson's time in there was like 17 minutes, like, you know, three hours over the course of a year. Like he was out of favor, right? And they measured this stuff, right? But there's somebody who in that, house, in that White House in particular, there were, there were a few people who could come in whenever they wanted, and get as much of John F. Kennedy as they wanted, whenever they wanted, right? And who were those people? They were his kids. They got all the time they wanted with Daddy. They all, he always heard their voice because he always, they were always in his heart. He always heard their voice because they were always in his heart. You know, you think about uh, at different points in history, perhaps, uh, recent history, you could say that the President of the United States was the most powerful person in the world. So who then is the second most powerful person? Maybe his favorite child? <laughs> you know, you can make a case that his favorite child is actually the second most powerful person on the planet. Who's the most powerful one who exists? Well, our Lord and God, right? And so who is the, who's second most? Maybe us? Who are his favorite children? In God's eyes, what Paul is trying to say here is that in God's eyes, you're owner of everything. Everything is yours. Because God knows you in this way. Everything is yours because God knows you in this way. And this Abba prayer, this Abba-like way of relating to God is how we enter into that truth and how we live in that truth. You know, you, you can imagine if the president's children if they started calling him Mr. President. You know, they, people might think it's cute for a minute, right? Oh, that's funny. Knock, knock it off, right? If they kept going with it, they'd be like, he'd, be, he'd sit him down. Stop calling me Mr. President. Call me Dad. I want you to call me Dad. That is how you enjoy this relationship. That is how you know who you are to me in this world. Call me Abba. Don't call me Mr. God. I want you to know that, that I'm yours. 
just as much as your mind. There's this, one of our favorite stories in scriptures in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. So you guys have heard this story. There's this uh, two sons, the father, the one son goes off. He's the bad son. He goes off and he, he burns through all his money, right? He comes home and lo and behold, the dad does a big party. But he's not the only one who has to come home in this story. Because the good son who didn't go away, the good son's home too, but he's out in the fields working. And he comes home, but he doesn't come into the party. The bad son comes home and he gets into the party. The good son won't come into the party. And why? Do you remember what he says? Remember what he says, why I'm staying out of the party? And now as I read this, listen for the presence of these elementary principles in the mind of this good son. He says, Father, look, I've worked for you all these years. I've never disobeyed, and you've never even given me a goat. I've worked for you, I've been a good boy, and I never even got a goat. What does the father say? Do you remember what the father says? He says, son, you are always with me, and everything that's mine is yours. Goats? What are you talking about? Goats? Everything is yours. You are always with me. Everything is yours. This is what God wants you and me to see. Christ gives us everything. Christ gives us everything. And though the world is tilted toward idolatry and slavery, and so, so often we tend to live like we have nothing, like we're searching for all these things that we already have. The reality is that, friends, if you want it, it's found only in Christ, and, if, and therefore you already have it. Right, are you here this morning looking for freedom from something? It's only in Christ and nowhere else. And if you have Christ, you have it. Are you looking for blessings and favor from God? Right, it's only in Christ, nowhere else. If you have Christ, you already have it. Peace, and that, that deep level healing and peace, it's only in Christ, nowhere else. If you have Christ, you already have it. Hope for the future, hope for broken things. It's only in Christ, nowhere else. If you have Christ, you already have it. You already have it. One of my favorite verses is 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, where John says, uh, and so we have come to know and to believe. It's so hard, isn't it, to know a thing, to know these truths, but then to truly believe them. To truly believe them. And so this is what Paul says here. This is what the Spirit has been given to help us do. The Spirit has been given to us to help us know our knownness. And this is what the Spirit uses to help us know our knownness. First of all, the Bible. Listen to the Spirit in the Bible. I mean, Paul right, is literally writing Scripture in order to convey precisely these truths, that this is who you are in Christ to God. This is what you have in Christ from God. The Bible exists to help us know and to believe, to know and to believe I mean, I know that 
me, you, all of us have things in our life that when I just said, like, if you're looking for this, it's in Christ and nowhere else. And, if it's in, and you said, yeah, right. What does that even mean? This is what the Spirit wants to do to help you understand that truth, to help you live in it. The Spirit has written Scripture to convey to you what it means to be known by God, how true it is based on Jesus' life and death, based on God's proven character. This is what the Word is for. So this is the first thing the Spirit has given us to help us know our knownness, the Bible. Uh, secondly, prayer. Of course, the prayer is a big, a big thing here. I'm going to refer to prayer now as, as Abba, Abba in the Father. Abba in the Father. Prayer is given to us to draw us into these truths. Prayer is how we enter into these truths. Because right? you can study them till, till the cows come home, till the prodigal son comes. You can study them, but you've got to live in them. You've got to live in them. And Abba, Father, praying is based on an understanding of our relationship with God that has been radically changed by Jesus. Right? Does Jesus change everything or what? Jesus changes everything. You don't need the elementary principles anymore. Jesus has fire-hosed those things away. Now we relate to the Father through Jesus. This is an immediate, intimate kind of relating. It is an inconsiderate, presumptive kind of relating to God. Right? Moms, are, are children considerate? Right? Are, are, do they, are they like, uh, mother, if it's convenient, right? What do they do? They walk around going, mom, mom, mom. And when the elementary principles of the world step into the lives and say, what do you want? They say, where's mom? <laughs> right? That's what I want. Get out of the way and where's mom? Mom, mom, right? And some of you right now are starting to get PTSD the more I say this. <laughs> like, stop, stop it, stop it. But this is what this prayer is describing. Reflexive, inconsiderate, intimate, expectant kind of relationship with God. Listen to the Spirit in the Word, but Abba the Father... Abba the Father, otherwise you haven't tried the Bible's way of addressing these problems. You haven't tried it. You've looked at it and said, I don't like it, and it doesn't work. <laughs> this is what Paul's saying. You've got to try it. You've got to Abba the Father. This is what the Spirit is trying to draw you into, and you want the Spirit to do this stuff. This is what the Spirit is doing. You know, there's a way of thinking about our, this is going to make us all feel bad, that's all right, you can handle it. Prayer, praying, our praying is a direct measure of whether we believe the grace of God. And, and similarly, you could look at it as a direct measure of our, uh, let's say it nicely, our attachment to the elementary principles of the world, that we are committed to doing things on our own by ourselves. The last thing that the Spirit gives us is friends. Uh, we, you may have noticed that we didn't talk at all about verses 12 to 20 because this is going to really, the subject here where Paul talks about these bad guys who have made Paul the, the Galatians' enemy, it really reaches ahead a little bit later, so we're going to focus in on that in a couple weeks. 
But I just want to point it out here because it's in this context that Paul raises this, that, that the Spirit has given us good friends, right? Good friends, Paul says, if I become your enemy, good friends are enemies of your enslavement. Good friends are enemies of your enslavement. And verse 20 ends with Paul saying, I'm perplexed with you. I'm perplexed with you. Right? He's like a parent talking to teenagers. Why do you still hang out with those people? They're in and out of jail and back and forth. Like, where do you think you're going to end up if you keep hanging out with these people? I'm perplexed. I'm perplexed. So these are things the Spirit has given us. So if you don't have friends like that, or if you're concerned about that, Abba the Father, four good friends. Ask God for good friends. If you have good friends, pray for your good friends. That God would protect them because the world doesn't like good friends. So include these friendships in, in your prayers, in your hearts. All right, let's wrap it up. Christ has given us everything. Christ has given us everything. So why spend your life for that which does not satisfy? All of us are drawn to just wander the streets, try our best, take what we can get, find stuff and throw it in our garbage bag. And so, as a result, we suffer. We suffer anxiety, we suffer insecurity, we suffer heartbreak and sorrows and fears when the reality is everything is ours. And that's just not right, friends. God is your Abba. Everything is yours. It is sad to have everything, but live like you need everything. To live with a constant sense of scarcity and then resentment Where's my goat? It's sad because not only is the good that we're leaving untouched, would that change our lives, but it would also change the lives of so many others. So let me pray over this for you and we'll sing and then turn our attention to the Lord's table. Heavenly Father, Abba, every one of us here is aware of a weight of entanglement with idolatry, a tendency toward enslavement, often with good things, also sometimes with bad things. But this is not what you want for us. This is not what you secured for us through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, because we know those truths, Lord, we turn now to to your Spirit, Holy Spirit, work in us. Convey to us a sense of these truths. Stir up in us this kind of prayerfulness that takes full advantage of this relationship that Jesus has given us with the Father. And as owners of everything now, Lord, help us to, help us to stand in this grace in, that we've received. Protect us from temptations. Protect us from, from what we do when we're insecure, anxious, and afraid. Protect us from those things. Lord, we turn ourselves over to you now. What we need to hear, Lord, make loud and inescapable. That we may live this next week and going forward 
knowing a little bit more how known we are. Understanding a little better how yours we are. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.